for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. My name is Marshall. Tired, Marshall? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. It's been it's been a busy week. It's been a, yeah, it's been a week. It has. Yeah, not only we have VBS going on all week, uh, a lot of stuff going on afterward. Yeah. Those after-hour pastoral responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Even on VBS week, the church has got to run. That's true. That's true. But it's all good things. Just lots of good things. Life is full right now. But that's okay because now we get to sit down and do another awesome thing that we get to do. We talked about at the end of the last episode, we teased that we're going to talk about the Great Awakening. A mm-hmm. couple of really important guys today. I think so. Like There have been times where we've given guys their whole episode. I think there's probably four guys we're going to talk about today that could justify their own episode. Yeah, yeah, but we don't have enough time. Which is a shame. (laughs) Speaking of time, not having enough of it, Mm. I got some peripheral historical things going on that are a little bit important. Okay. And in part, it's not what's going on, it's what's not going on. Mm. So let's throw back to 1606. You know what happens in 1606? Jamestown is founded? Nope. Oh, the, the first Europeans land in Australia. Okay. In 1606. It's not until 1642 that they find New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> so they've circumnavigated the globe. Mm-hmm. The, the Dutch have been to Australia. Uh, the Spanish have been to Australia. Lots of people going to Australia. A Dutchman finds New Zealand, 1642, charts the West Coast. Mm. They never land. Oh. They never actually step foot on the island Okay, until after the time we're talking about. Right. 1769. Yeah, James Cook. Yeah, wow. So <laughs> That's interesting. So from 1643, 1642, right. until 17... 17- 69. Wow. There's nothing going on in New Zealand. That's like almost 130 years. Nothing of European significance. Right, 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 right. Just left untouched. Like, we know it's there. Never landed a ship. Huh. Isn't that bizarre? That is bizarre. New Zealand history for you. There you go. And that matters. You know why? Because Terry. Because, well, because Terry. Terry is the most faithful listener. He is. To ride in and share his thoughts. I love it. But also, that's where Susan lives. Susan. Susan is a listener who wrote us to say, I live in New Zealand. Oh. And I love the podcast and particularly Marshall's little bits of historical (laughs) input. So So there, Susan. There you go. Is some historical input that you might enjoy. I love it. I love it. But to think, like we we joke all the time that nobody listens to the podcast, Mm -hmm. except for our two people. Right. People, our podcast is reaching Middle Earth. That's amazing. Do you I think love it. Sauron's a listener? <laughs> stop, stop. I honestly, I, I've heard though, like if you go to New Zealand, you can visit a lot of the filming locations. Mm-hmm. Like to go hang out in the Shire for a day, like just to have a picnic. Oh, your nerd showing. Oh, oh yeah, 
Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a bucket list. New he, Zealand's on the bucket list. Yeah, what is it about pastors and the Lord of the Rings? Mm, I don't know. They just go together. They just do. <laughs> they do. They do. Big long books. Yeah. Do you have other things? I got some things, but no, that no, was it. That, that was, was your it. thing. It was really just a shout out. Yeah. To no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Also taking place in kind of the the. 1700s, which is essentially what we're going to be talking about here. We're, we're well into the 1700s now with this episode, so we're we're closing in on the modern era. We have, in 1707, the Act of Union. Scotland and England, their parliaments are merged, and now we have the Kingdom of Great Britain. Up until that point, it was, it was not. It was just Britain. It was, it, well... But it, now it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's now no longer just simply England. And Scotland, they are united. Although that's that's going to be a bumpier road than we have time to get into. But uh, 1709, the first piano was built. Ah. Bartolomeo Cristofori. That's awesome. He's Italian. I tried to... That was a bit of my Italian I, I heard that, yeah. 1718, the city of New Orleans, New Orleans, is New found, Orleans? founded by the French in Louisiana. NOLA. That's, no, that's Nola. what... The, that's what the newer kind mm. of thing, as people like to say, NOLA. NOLA. Mm. Uh, 1723, slavery is abolished in Russia by Peter the Great. Who would have thought those Russians would be so far ahead? Yeah, forward thinking. I guess so. Although, I mean, the gulags happened in the 20th century. <laughs> so, like, was it really abolished or was it just <laughs> put on pause? Anyway. Or just renamed? <laughs> yeah, renamed, yeah. Um, 1750, which is kind of in the the middle of, of the time we're going to be talking about, was considered the peak of the Little Ice Age. Mm-hmm. So, uh, over time, you know, uh, weather patterns, the world gets a little colder, a little warmer. There was a significant period of time where the average temperatures were really low. So mm-hmm. your your winters were particularly brutal. I think what what a time to be a settler in North America. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't understand. I yeah. mean, I'm sure, like, you know, along the Virginia coast, winter's not that bad. But I always think about, like, around here, man, like how brutal winter can be with all the modern comforts. Right. Why would anyone choose to live here before, like, modern heating? Marshall, you say that every March. <laughs> not, and we're talking about with modern heating. Every March, you and I have the congregation, the conversation. Why, why are we here? Why did why did anyone settle yeah. here? Yeah. I've been to Europe and it's much nicer than this for most of the year. Yeah, and in the little ice age thing, let's we don't want emails about the earth heating up and cooling off. That was not it, a global it's not, warming. It's not a global thing. Warming I was in opening. I wasn't trying to I'm not not gonna not here to offend people on either side of that but, fence. But interestingly enough, I I have this weird theory. Mm. About the shift of seasons. Okay. And I wonder if this could be part of it. Because in all of the lure that mm-hmm. comes to us in the old stories, it's snowing in Thanksgiving in November, mm. because that's when Thanksgiving is, mm. by the way. <laughs> sure. In November. I mean, we get we get snow in Canadian Thanksgiving up here in October, so So there's there's snow at Thanksgiving mm. and the flowers are out in April. Right. Which just isn't the case. It's not. Not anymore. Right. Yeah. And so now you have flowers at Thanksgiving <laughs> and it snows in Easter. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. 
1752, the lightning rod is developed by Benjamin Franklin, who makes a brief appearance in at least my notes today. Okay. Which is fun. Um, Almost there. 1754 to 1763. This is uh, relevant to our Canadian listeners. The French-Indian War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Essentially, the French and their allies, native allies, fought the English and their allies and got thumped. And that is why Canada became a British colony and was no longer a French colony. Don't tell Quebec. <laughs> the Bloc Québécois are <laughs> don't, listening. Don't tell them. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty it was pretty one sided by the end of it. And uh, there you go, and took massive swaths. The French essentially they got they got Saint Pierre and Miquelon out of the deal, which if you don't know are these two tiny little islands in the Atlantic. That's what France got to keep. <laughs> Here, you could have some fishing boats. Um, And then my last thing was actually what you had mentioned, James Cook exploring and mapping out New Zealand and Australia and Mm -hmm. Pacific Islands and all that kind of fun stuff. Beach to it. You did. So that is reference point for the world. Ten minutes of reference points. You're welcome. Yep. (laughs) Now, to get us into the Great Awakening, Mm -hmm. we have to note that our our rose-colored historical glasses are not accurate. It's true. And so in, in all of this talk, because this is a church history podcast, which means we are focused on the history of the church. Mm. We are going to talk about people of God and what they're doing, where they're popping up and growing. That does not mean... That until the modern age, society was predominantly Christian. Right. And the, so here's the thing. I, I, was, I was doing my studies, and uh, when I was in Louisville, one of, the, one of the statements made, which is an often shared fact, is that uh, biblical counseling— which is what I'm studying, uh, the act of using Scripture to speak into uh, the consequences of life, for lack of a better term. Mm. Biblical counseling was the norm and widely practiced until the age of psychology, at which point we said, this isn't sin, you don't need a Savior, we just got to figure out where things went wrong and talk to you about it. Right. And you'll be okay. It's more than that. I understand it's more yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. You know my first thought was? Neither one of our listeners believes that. <laughs> we, we talk about hundreds of years where the Bible almost disappears from the church. Right. And when the Bible is used and applied to people's lives, those people are persecuted and put to death for it. Right. <laughs> Right? But it's an example of how we can look backward with rose-colored glasses and not take opportunity Mm -hmm. to see the different things that are going on in society, the different waves of secular thought, of the waves of other religions, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Psychology is a predominant teaching of our time. It's not the first thing to come against Christianity as another worldview. Right. Right? In the time that we're talking about, there's atheism, there's 
variations of deism that aren't Christian deism, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of things that are that are popping up and competing with Christianity for a worldview. Yeah, and society falls away, even even though it is still very much churched, and church is still interwoven into the fabric of culture. It doesn't mean hearts are repentant before Christ, and a Christian worldview is the predominant worldview. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just means that, like, church attendance, um, and maybe you know some some degree of biblical literacy might have been more common than they are today. Maybe just just by how people were educated or whatever, or how communities were structured. But it does not mean that the vast majority of the people in the 13 colonies were regenerate. Right. In, right? in, in many instances, the reason, the reason church was more central in the community at the time is because there wasn't a lot else going on. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Right. Yeah. People didn't have softball tournaments mm-hmm. to go to on mm-hmm. the weekend. They didn't have televisions and fishing boats and all of the recreation that our current wealth and technology has afforded to us. Mm. What are you going to do? Everybody else is gathered up at the church. We might as well go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the Great Awakening. Um, it's known by a couple different names. It's known as the Great Awakening in its American context. Yeah. It, in the UK, it's sometimes remembered as just the evangelical revival. But it was a movement. And even to call it a, a singular movement is probably not quite correct. Mm-hmm. It was a series of waves of revival and um and kind of a, a, a renewed sense of piety and devotion um that greatly affected protestantism in in both england and the american colonies mm-hmm. um and there are a number of key players in in how this came about there's a number of key players that we're not even going to mention today because like I said this is a, a, it was like it's a localized thing to some degree right um and it's happening in a lot of places all at once right and and at this point you can just start name dropping like crazy oh yeah right because there's so many known figures that step up mm-hmm. but we need to hit some specific ones who lead this transatlantic revival yeah yeah so i think the the first one, technically two, because we can't always we can't forget number two are the Wesley brothers. Oh, let's we'll start with the Wesley. Okay, is that okay? Yeah, I would have started with that. Okay. <laughs> well, I've already started it. So let's here we do go. It. So we've let's got John and Charles Wesley. Mm-hmm. John was the older by a few years, uh, born seventeen o three in England, Lincolnshire. Um, they were pastors' kids. Their father was Samuel. He was an Anglican minister of more uh, Arminian leanings at the time because there was the variety on soteriology in the Anglican church at the time. Both both boys eventually attended Oxford and while they were there would be founding members of a society that came to be known as the Holy Club. The Holy Club. The Holy Club. Now, Why not? Now, they didn't give it that name. That was like... Oh, I would. <laughs> 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 that was that was a mocking name that those who were not part of the Holy Club started calling them. Right? Could you imagine the other way around? Could you imagine calling yourself the Holy Club? <laughs> Being like, "Hey, what are you guys doing? We're part of a club. Can I be in your club?" No. Why? Because this is the Holy Club. You go stand over there. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So what they would do at the Holy Club is they would read through classic Christian literature and other literature, read through the, the Greek New Testament. They do this a few times a week. Um, you know, their members also included George Whitfield, who we have mm-hmm. to mention as well in a little bit. Um, they would all kind of be, it's said that this group of people, this very small group was the beginning of the Methodist movement itself. Like this little, this small group at Oxford, um, became, would turn into this massive movement. And there was a, a real focus within this group on, you know, prayer, self-examination, acts of charity, right? Bringing food to the poor, visiting people in prison. Mm-hmm. They would even like take their time, take time to teach orphans how to read. And really what it was for the Wesleys and the rest of this holy club was just kind of like, just looking at scripture and saying, what is it that we should be doing? Like, what are our priorities supposed to be? Right. Right. Yes, we're at Oxford. Yes, we're here to be educated. Yes, we're here, you know, and all these things. And they were, they certainly weren't Mm anti-intellectual. John Wesley is not anti-intellectual. However, they're saying there's something, there's an experiential aspect to this that, that maybe is, is, or is being neglected, at least, at least in the context in which they were in. Right. The idea that we're here feeding our minds, but what about our souls? Yeah. What does it profit a man? Mm. If he learns the whole world, he yeah. loses his soul. John went kind of crazy with this stuff, though, a little bit, because what he started doing is keeping a, a journal, an hourly journal, where he would like rate himself on how devoted to the Lord he was hour to hour on a scale of one to nine. So he, like, he's type A. <laughs> he's so intense. He's a go-getter. He is. He is a go-getter. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he ends up going to, he ends up traveling to the States. John, mm-hmm. John does. I think Charles goes with him, actually. Um, he gets fully ordained, and they go to Savannah, Georgia. And Georgia was the last of the 13 colonies to be established, mm-hmm. much more, much later than the others. And um, this guy, James Oglethorpe, had founded this new colony, was building this new town on this plan that he'd made up with, uh, uh, made up. And, um, and he wanted Wesley to be his guy. Um, and it was fine, but Wesley, what Wesley really wanted to do is he wanted to be a missionary to the natives and he didn't really get to do that. No, he's pretty bummed out about that. Yeah. Um, they were just so ministers were so few that he ended up just working with European settlers. Um, he was influenced by the Moravians. Do you remember talking about the Moravians? Very briefly. Yeah. It was a while ago. We mentioned them. Um, just to jog people's memories, they were kind of like a pre-Reformation Protestant group out of Bohemia in Germany who kind of broke with the Catholic Church and were heavily persecuted. And they fought some wars. I think they I think they beat the Catholics so many times that they just like ended up tolerating their existence. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, so Wesley spent some time in the States. You just You just gave us away. Now everybody knows that we don't just walk around with this knowledge rattling around in our brains and that we actually have to study for each episode. Oh, man, look, my wife is calling me. Again. FaceTiming me. Always. Like, every time. She has a sixth sense for it. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Anyways, so Wesley... Okay, so... I'll, I'll leave off the narrative here with, with Wesley returning to England. He, he It's a bit of a funny story. So he, he ends up leave, having to leave Georgia because there's some conflict that mm-hmm. crops up. He had kind of been falling for this woman, but also felt like maybe he shouldn't get married. And so she's Because like, he's a busy guy. He's a busy guy, yeah. And so she ends up marrying someone else, but his opinion of her was that, you know, she wasn't as pious as she should be, so he denied her communion. 
And then her family like pressed charges against him for denying communion. And there was this whole legal issue that came up with it. And so he decided to just go back to England. Just get out of here. Just, no, it's not working out. That's how, that's how you hand, that is an example of how to handle uprisings in church politics. It, but it seems, Hop a little, a boat. it seems a little high school because it's like this girl it that is. he was crushing on ended up shacking up with another guy because he wouldn't marry her. Mm-hmm. And then he like, anyways, we don't know the whole, we don't know all the ins and outs, but let's it, just leave it at that. Cause that sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Who cares about the facts? <laughs> yeah. 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 Is that, is that your it for John Wesley? That's it for like, yeah, for that part of his life. Cause then he comes back and connects with George Whitfield. Who's right. Busy. Yeah. Doing stuff. Yeah. So I, just because this is pretty Wesley specific, it's, mm. it's more end of life stuff, but, mm. uh, even, even within the fact that he grows up as a believer in, in the home of a pastor, even though he is a part of the Holy Club, mm. like, he doesn't have the, the same kind of fire that we're going to find him with in the end Yeah. until he goes to church one day and they read the preface of the commentary on Romans from Martin Luther. Yeah. Not even talking about commentary on the scripture itself. Yeah. <laughs> the preface that Martin Luther writes to his commentary mm-hmm. on Romans. And Wesley is never the same. Yeah. He says, uh, he felt his heart strangely warmed. I felt I trusted in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, Mm. even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Mm. Just this new wash of assurance Mm -hmm. that as the Methodist form, experientialism is a big part of Methodist practice, right? Not to the point of the Quakers, Mm -hmm. not to the point of you can close your Bible and focus on experience because it's equal. Right. Um, but but the notion that I, I feel something moving within me, right, right it is given is given a bit of an exclamation point. Yeah. And and especially in early Methodist. We we said he was a busy guy. Mm-hmm. He preached for fifty years, traveled approximately two hundred and fifty thousand miles. <laughs> preaching wow we're talking on foot and horseback yeah oh yeah not in his private jet (laughs) doing his itinerant ministries he preached at least how many sermons do you think a man could preach in a lifetime oh i don't Forty thousand. wow at least forty thousand times he preached on his 81st birthday which is unthinkable mm-hmm. to live 81 years in this time. Mm-hmm. On his 81st birthday, he attributed his incredible stamina and strength to one, the power of God, mm. two, traveling four to 5,000 miles a year. Okay. So he sees the traveling is good for him. <laughs> uh, three, the ability to sleep whenever and wherever he wanted. Yeah. Which you would. Yeah. If you were working that hard. Yeah. Number four, getting up early at a set hour between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. And number five, constant preaching, particularly early in the morning. Wow. 
that so that's the secret that's that's the secret the to secret long to long life. life according to john wesley <laughs> travel and, a lot and preach a lot and hey, that say, sounds all right i'm good with that <laughs> so he's a busy guy and a great preacher yeah yeah but these same things when he does get married makes him a terrible husband yeah oh yeah uh so just just the darker side of wesley for a bit mm. he does eventually get married and basically abandons his wife yeah. for all of this travel mm-hmm. to the point that the legend has it. She had been dead for two weeks before he found out. Wow. And just continued his circuit, like didn't go home, time of mourning, gathering the kids, all that kind of stuff. Just wow. sorry to hear that and keeps going. So he, mm. his focus on writing and preaching, being out and about, mm-hmm. was great to a fault. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's fair. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a, the risk of, right, of getting so, so focused on one thing mm-hmm. that you, you know, you neglect all others. Yeah. And his, and his brother preaches... Not like this. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think anybody preaches like this. Yeah, no. But his brother's better known as a hymn writer. Yeah. I, I, the number I read was 6,500. Right. 6,500 hymns that he's written. Right. And John wrote a number of them as well. He, but, John wrote a lot too. But yeah. not nearly as many. Yeah. So for all those people that say modern worship songs have so many throwaway songs mm. that mm. are going to be sung for a couple of years, will move on, they won't last. I'd say crunch the numbers on Charles Wesley. <laughs> right. <laughs> Percentage-wise, <laughs> who has more lasting music, Charles Wesley or Hillsong? Right. <laughs> That's funny. I love that. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, when you're just like pumping them out like that, they can't all be quality. Yeah, it's like he felt a need for a new song for every sermon that his brother was going to preach. I mean, think about, okay, so like how many days there are in a year? I know. Is that like that's like a new song every day for decades? Maybe I'm not kidding. Maybe maybe every time John Wesley needed to preach a new sermon, <laughs> and he's going to hit somewhere near forty thousand. His brother's like, well, we got to have two songs to open and one to close. <laughs> got to write these things up. He couldn't find a response song that really fit the you know the mm-hmm. message of the sermon, so just write a fresh one. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's just incredible freestyle, and it didn't take him that long. <laughs> Right, he just sat down at the yeah. piano and he had a friend. He's like, "Grab a pen and paper. This yeah. is going to be good. Yeah. I'm feeling it." That's awesome. <laughs> so, so John John became known for his kind of open air preaching that he he ended up doing, um, but he was not always that way. He was actually influenced his his kind of uh, shift in being open to that type of preaching actually came out of uh, from George Whitfield, mm-hmm. and so after after John's you know, less than successful stint in Georgia. Uh, when he returned to England, he he met up with his friend George Whitfield, and George had begun preaching to large groups in open air. And what he was trying, what George was trying to do, was he was actually trying to raise money to plant orphanages in the U.S. in Savannah, in Savannah, in the same place, right? And uh, and so he had begun preaching, and and had just been drawing a lot of people. Um, he actually also was was known for preaching to like 
coal miners. Like he would just be mm-hmm. like in these really rough towns, these really rough communities, you know, that did and, and would have to preach outside because there were so many people who were, who were coming. Yeah. And, and in part two, so like he's Anglican. Yeah. Um, and we, we talked about how in the States in the previous episode, there's a lot of denominational mixing, mm-hmm. toleration and cooperation mm-hmm. even, uh, we're now going to see that same cooperation in England. Yeah. Right? Denominational cooperation. Uh, not perfectly. We no. still don't see it perfectly. But no. but people who are like, yeah, you know what? We're different, but we're going to work together on this. Uh, so we're seeing denominational cooperation. We're also seeing transatlantic co- cooperation. Mm-hmm. Right? The colonialists coming to England, the English going to the colonies. Uh, politically, they're not getting along. No. But the church is yep. in kind of a beautiful way. Yeah, yeah. And Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Just to get back to the coal mine thing. Mm. So after his time in Georgia, Whitfield is comes back and preaches a couple of times. Because uh, he's, he's a famous preacher from his teenage years mm. in the Anglican church. But now he's talking so much about the gospel— that he's deemed a gospel enthusiast <laughs> by the Anglican Church. And <laughs> so that's like an insult or a problem. And it is the reason they stopped giving him their pulpits. Yeah. So he starts open air preaching because no one will let him have a pulpit anymore in the Anglican Church because he's yeah. a gospel enthusiast. Yeah, even though he's ordained. Yeah. May it be said of me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so Whitfield will then eventually return to the United States. He will build his orphanage. And then he will go on some journeys um, to continue preaching um, a sermon sermon series that you know is going to be considered instrumental in the first great awakening. He rode on horseback across the colonies. He made one journey from New York to Charleston, South Carolina, and it was considered the longest the longest journey on horseback by a white man in, in North America or something like that. There was some like, like <laughs> phrase in one of my books that mentioned that, like he just did this kind of continuous journey and stopped. And what's interesting, what I love about Whitfield is um, he, he and Wesley differ. We can talk a little bit more about this later, but he and Wes, uh, um, Wesley differed on certain aspects of theology. Mm-hmm. So Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist, right? but that didn't stop him from freely offering the gospel Every time he preached, he would right. he would conclude his sermons with "Come, poor, lost, undone sinner, come just as you are to Christ." And so, um, contrary to you know that that kind of uh, you know uh, straw man of of Calvinist not offering the gospel, he was that's all he that's all he did. This gospel enthusiast, um, and he would use every every single resource at his disposal to let people know when he was going to be preaching so he they used printing presses to like mm-hmm. print pamphlets and he'd like send messengers in advance and use signs and stuff to let people know hey this thing is happening you you better be there and um anything to just kind of build like to draw people fire up in. the hype train yeah and he did i mean he was a celebrity on both sides of the atlantic sometimes he'd be preaching to crowds 20 or 30,000 in number mhm like, can you imagine? Without amplification. Without amplification. Right. He was known for having, he was I, he was a stout man with a loud voice and was also cross-eyed. 
which is interesting. I found that out. Yeah. He looked different, right? Like, I mean, not not the picture of what you would consider to be, you know, the whatever, the guy on the cover of Men's Health magazine necessarily, but mm-hmm. his 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 ability to communicate was just so strong that people were were just drawn to him in, in you know, by the thousands. Yeah. In fact, Wesley, a great preacher in his own right, mm-hmm. loves Whitfield's preaching so much uh, that he says Whitfield could stand on the stage and just say Mesopotamia as why that's the random word that pops into Wesley's head in the moment. Who knows? Sure. But he could just say Mesopotamia and tears would flow. <laughs> the crowd would be touched and they would be, they would be moved. Yeah. Uh, Whitfield, oh, two, two episodes ago, three episodes ago, two episodes ago, was basically a commercial for Banner of Truth, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. the Banner of Truth logo is blue and white, and it's got George Whitfield. Okay, with his yeah. arm in the air, preaching. Right. Interesting choice, because mm. the Banner of Truth is that Puritan preservation society, and here we have an Anglican mm. that. I, even in the pure is late in a Puritan movement. What I would consider yeah. late in a Puritan movement. Yeah, and he founded the. He ended. Up, he ends up kind of leaving that and founding the Calvinistic Methodists right. branch of the Methodist Church. Right, since he's disowned by the Anglican right. Church. Right? right, like right. he he ends up joining with Wesley in this sort of Methodist movement, but he's not going to go with the Arminianism. Right, right. He's going to do his his own kind of thing, but even within which is again just that. Beautiful cooperation. Oh yeah, that's existing mm-hmm. at this time. A letter from someone who visited one of those traveling tours that Wesley and Whitfield were doing, mm. uh, written to Charles Wesley by Elizabeth Henson. Okay, I want to read it to you, but it's hard to read. Mm. Okay, because she's barely literate, and they use her spelling. Okay. In in this publication. Okay. Which makes it hard to read. <laughs> in 1740, she hears uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley and writes to Charles Wesley and says, I was a Pharisee, but God was pleased to convince me by hearing Mr. Whitfield's sermon. I know myself a damned sinner. Satan raged within, and I have reason to bless my God, for he justified the ungodly in me. Your brother, John Wesley, expounded the 12th chapter of St. John, and the Lord worked mightily in me, and I felt a strong conviction. I am, a lo- I am lost in wonder when I see what God has done for my soul, I have now peace with God, and I know that my Redeemer liveth and maketh intercession for me. Mm. Mm. An amazing, yeah. What a what a positive, <laughs> a positive thing for someone to say about your preaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the goal. Oh man, yeah. And the thing about the thing we have to talk about too, in regards to the preaching of. Wesley and Whitfield and others at this time is that it's, there's a, 
a new kind of direction that's, that's happening with their preaching, right? It, it is emotive mm-hmm. preaching, right? Right. It is, it is emotional preaching that is, that is designed to elicit emotion in a mm-hmm. good, in a good way, in a healthy way. Right. Right. Just not just simply preaching to people's minds, but preaching to their hearts as well. Right. Right. And that is something that is, is fresh. That is something that like people, you know, whether it's in England or in the colonies, aren't entirely accustomed to until it shows up. And it has this massive impact on people because it's not the kind of sermon you can sleep through. Right. You're not taking a nap through this one. Right. And, and, you know, so the way that things are explained and the appeals that are made to people's hearts um, are just so shocking really for, for this people who are living in this society that it, it makes waves. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and it doesn't just, you know, start and finish with a few of these, these big names that we're mentioning. Like it becomes a thing that, that continues and echoes throughout, throughout history, even to this day, I would say, Mm -hmm. right. That there's, there's a degree to which like some of the things that even you and I do in our preaching is, you know, is, is patterned to some degree off of what guys like Whitfield and West, not that we're in the same league by any stretch, but, but it's, it's like that, right? Yeah. And it's, it's an important balance to keep Mm. in that. Uh, there are those who can go too far on one side and say, uh, if you inform the mind enough, the heart will follow, Mm. right? If you know the truths to be true, then the heart will respond as the heart should respond. Mm. And I think it's important to note that it's the heart and not simply the mind that is called to God mm-hmm. and is transformed. Mm-hmm. Yes, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Mm-hmm. But it's our soul, it's our heart that's moved. Yeah. Um, and it's not, that's not done simply by education. Right. At the same time, there are those who believe that if you just stir the spirit enough, mm-hmm. then that person will be moved and come to right teaching. Right. Which is where we apply the thing you win them to win them with is what you win them to. Right. Right. If you win them with emotionalism and not truth, then you win them to emotionalism and not necessarily to truth. Yeah. And you, you can st- only keep them through emotionalism. You still have a bridge to cross yeah. from that emotionalism into truth with emotion. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got their attention. But they're not there yet. Right. And that's where, and it's not a manipulative thing, right? We're not talking about truth, and then you say, okay, and now how do we manipulate the Spirit, Mm. right? The truth of God is powerful and Mm. moves the heart emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I think when we fall too far to the left and to the right on this, it's not because we're not doing a good job of implementing one or the other. It's because we're holding the other out. Hmm. I think the truth and the emotion come hand in hand. Yeah. And we need to not work to eliminate one or the other. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that people didn't sleep on Whitfield and uh, Wesley. Mm-hmm. I like to think that's not true. <laughs> Because people sleep on me all the time. 
And I oh, like to man. think it happened to them too. <laughs> uh, but so many, like you're talking about the coal miners, right? There's mm. a note that uh, talked about the guys coming out of the coal mines and having gutters of white mm. on their cheeks mm. uh, as they walked home from the tears that they wept, mm-hmm. washing the, the soot off of their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I feel like the only person that cries in my sermons is me. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too, man. I do that all the time. I get choked up. <laughs> get, I'm just, yeah. I'm in it. I'm passionate for yeah. it. And I look out and everyone feel like people are just staring at me like, <laughs> what's up with this guy? He got to cry. <laughs> Are you you crying? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about one one interesting thing about Whitfield before you know we move on to to Edwards. Um, Whitfield preached his last sermon the night before he died, so he dies at the age of fifty five. So some somehow the the advice of Wesley's longevity just. (laughs) was lost on him or didn't apply to him. He he had always kind of been not particularly healthy throughout his whole life, but he never stopped preaching even when he was poorly. And uh, he preached his last sermon standing on top of a large barrel <laughs> and then died the next morning. Just like, I just love that, that image yeah. just on top of the barrel and the next day he's gone. Um, but that was, uh, that was Whitfield. Um, yeah. He had, oh, I forgot to mention, he had this weird friendship with Benjamin Franklin, which is kind of interesting, but you can look that up online if you're, if you're curious about what that was all about. Benjamin Franklin, not a particularly devout man, and yet they had this curious relationship with one another. Um, his friendship, obviously, with John Wesley is much more, much more well-documented mm-hmm. um, and interesting. But why don't we talk about Jonathan Edwards before we run out of time? Let's here. do it. Okay. Go. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards is tough because he, as big as these other two guys are, Mm -hmm. Jonathan Edwards is the influence to so many people. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like this. I like to, I like to tell people, young people who are getting into music, what you need to do. I already tell my kids this. Mm. What you need to do is you need to, those people that you like, that you're listening to, find out who they liked and listened to. Right, and mm. keep tracing those roots back. Mm. Uh, if you do that with your favorite preachers, you're gonna come across Edwards. Yeah, for sure. And and if you feel like I don't know that I've ever heard anything by Jonathan Edwards, I would just ask the question: Have you ever listened to Piper? Mm-hmm. Because if you've listened to Piper, you've listened to Edwards. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in reincarnation. I think that probably goes without saying. Yeah, <laughs> but Piper is so motivated and moved by the theology of Edwards Mm -hmm. that he's unapologetically spitting Edwards in every sermon Mm -hmm. uh, and holds to many of the same kind of notions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's, he's a part of this massive revival with famous sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God, Mm -hmm. which is probably best known for its title. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much time these guys spend on titles. Mm. I, I'll tell you how I write a sermon title. Alex comes in on Sunday morning and goes, something has to show up on YouTube. <laughs> and I go, uh, 
and then I spout something out. That's, that's I don't awesome. put a whole lot of thought into the title itself. <laughs> oh, man. But Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a, a fierce title. That's a good one. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards is important, too. I think even in, like, in the American evangelical identity, because he's American-born, unlike these other guys we've mentioned before. So he's homegrown and and will spend the, you know his career mm-hmm. in in the United States uh, in the colonies you know actively working for revival amongst those people um, some pretty spectacular things are going to be you know are going to happen you know he's he's going to serve in a variety of churches in a, a variety of these contexts where just a, the lord's just going to use him in a, in amazing ways mm-hmm. um Particularly, you know, in in the Northeast and Connecticut and that area where where he does a lot of his, um, where he does a lot of his ministry. He's it's funny because a lot of people might get the sense that Edwards was this particularly like fiery and angry guy because of the title of the sermon that you just mentioned. Yeah, that's actually he was less that way. He was yeah. actually more soft spoken in his preaching style, still emotive and still still engaging, but he wasn't a yeller. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when when your content is heavy, you don't have to you don't have to scream at people necessarily. Mm-hmm. But he was also I mean, in, in his from from all accounts that I've read, like in his personality was was, you know, fairly tender hearted, you know, gave good counsel to people, um, you know was was kind of one of these guys who who related well to a lot of people. Sometimes people didn't like him <laughs> for a variety of reasons. There 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 was conflict in in some of his, you know, ministry placements and I think there was one time a church the church voted to kick him out and refused to let him preach anymore <laughs> because of right because of how he could be, but but again, I think that had less to do with the personality distinction than more to do with just how 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 intensely he just saw the need for authentic worship, right? And real, genuine love for the Lord and for his word, right? And so, you know, w- when you get these types of characters, you know, into context where these guys who are like, it needs to be real, it needs to be authentic, it needs to be genuine, the pe- these people need to wake up. Um, sometimes people don't want to wake up. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's what's that's what, you know, while there is this great success that happens with the Great Awakening, there are still many people who aren't the biggest fans mm-hmm. of what's going on. And there are divisions. What's interesting is that you get with this whole Great Awakening and this movement that happens, within denominations, you have a bit of sectarian stuff going on because you have Presbyterians who are for or against Right, you have Anglicans who are for or against. Right, right. So you have even within the pre-existing denominations, and then what you have is then you have this weird thing where you have, you know, Presbyterians or Anglicans or Baptists or whatever who are like-minded um, in regards to the need for revival and this evangelical push and this proclaiming of the gospel as being primary mm-hmm. that actually in some in some instances almost have see themselves as having more in common than with some of the other churches in their own quote unquote denomination. Right. And in in every because this is not going to be the last time we see a big revival. No. We're going to see it again in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. In every one of these there is some 
group that just historically stands against this revival. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes it's just ha- like nitpicking how it's going about, mm-hmm. right? I, I almost just can't wait to get to the Victorian period to talk about this mm-hmm. and Moody. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Edwards, Edwards plays his part significantly in this. Less as the traveling itinerant preacher doing 40,000 sermons <laughs> and and more as a writer right and and a carer for other pastors which mm. is something that I've learned recently that I didn't know about before mm. right so other people your Whitfields and Wesleys and and such mm-hmm. when they needed someone to talk to Edwards was a great guy for them to go to mm. right kind mm-hmm. of the pastor's pastor nice. right uh, a number of guys stay with him Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, in his house, he just brings them home. Seminarians live with him cool. uh, as a as a way of helping train them up um, and walking them through what it means to to grow and to become a pastor. Mm. Uh, he wrote a ton, like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe maybe fifteen years ago, ten fifteen years ago. Uh, I, I think it's Yale. Yep. As a publisher. Yep. Published the entire works of Jonathan Edwards. They announced there's only going to be 50 volumes made, and mm. we'll never do this again. It's a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. I've seen a copy. They have a copy at the uh, bookstore of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And mm. when I was there for my uh, last seminar, I saw them there. They were beautiful. $5,000 was the asking price. Wow. So we're going to start a fundraiser. (laughs) We do a car wash. (laughs) Yes. The Jonathan Edwards car wash. Yeah, it it, it was a cool thing to see. But... But of all the things that he wrote and that he wrote on, the thing that I've seen quoted the most is is his work, but not even, right? So among the pastors that'll come to him and stay with him is David Brainerd. Okay. Right? So David Brainerd is uh, a young guy. He's deeply devoted. He's not a big name guy. Mm-hmm. Right. If you Google him, this is what you're going to learn about David Brainerd. His diary was published by Jonathan Edwards. Hmm. That's what it's going to be. Hmm. Right. Uh, but Edwards was so moved by this guy, took him in when he was sick. I think TB. Okay. I'd have to look that up. We just scratch that. Sure. Uh, but anyway, he's there. Edwards's daughter. Takes a bit of a liking to them, but mm-hmm. he's he's really sick. She's caring for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends up dying there in Jonathan Edwards' house. Wow! And but such a, a pious guy that Edwards is just moved by this guy's diary, uh, and he publishes it, and it becomes a huge seller. Not even in their local time. But later on, we're going to have John Ryland. We're going to have uh, Andrew Fuller, Baptist pastors later on that are going to talk about this book as if it were the second Bible. Wow. Right? Just this huge thing. 
to move their spear. But like you said, and this he he's not he's not so heady or so angry mm. as we might like to think Edwards mm-hmm. could be. He's mm-hmm. he's very personal. Yeah. And uh not only with other believers, but with God himself. Mm-hmm. Right. And um I as I was getting ready for this, I thought, I don't even have that book. And I've, I've so many times I've read and that book has come up. This book changed my mm-hmm. life. This book, I've got a friend, Alan Self, pastor of uh, Bethel in Strathroy, mm-hmm. um, who was talking about being on a bit of a sabbatical and he grabbed that book out of the church library randomly, read it, changed his life. Wow. Um, there are only six copies left in Amazon for the hardcover. Oh really? It's thirty nine ninety, thirty nine oh three. I've got it? one in my cart right now. You should get it. I'm, I'm going. To, I'm going to. I'm going to wait till this is over. And I'm going to click purchase. <laughs> uh, but nice. that's interesting. Also, while we're on this people around Edwards mm-hmm. kind of thing, in uh, in his book Iron Sharpens Iron, Michael Haken talks about Edwards's daughter who is also quite the teacher uh, and writer, thinker. Mm. Um, She's in school, and she is talking about the godly gift of friendship. Mm. And the professor says, essentially, to summarize it, what would a woman know about that? In her diary that night, she says... I stood up to him and I talked him quite silent. <laughs> talked him quite silent. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. So she's got some backbone. I like it. So I like it. So she's got a bit of her dad mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in his ability to not just reason, but to do it with passion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's great. Yeah, no, there's there's such a legacy left by by some of these characters. And, and like there's so many others when it comes to this era that we could talk about who have these crazy stories of things that they did um and and just you know seeing the faithfulness of God and in, in in reinvigorating the church in in you know across this this large area. And it like I said mentioned before like it's the impact of that has really echoed um, and we can, we continue to feel that in ways that we might not even be aware of. Like even just like the call to like the calling people to salvation as a regular thing, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like in really like emphasizing the importance of like, of repentance and, and, and to actually like not just know doctrine, which, you know, you and I are, we're big proponents of people knowing doctrine, right? Like that is we don't want to diminish that at all, but like actually having an experiential faith, right? That, that, that there should be, it should, it's not just theory, that it's actually something that plays itself out in your life in tangible ways. Um, is just like, was amazing and it, it was so needed then and it continues to be needed now. Um, and again, it was just, we're, we have, we have a lot to thank for, for what happened and, and what, what this this great awakening did over time is it 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 kind of broadened the scope of evangelicalism to a certain degree. I mean, obviously you have the rise of the Methodist movement with Wesley and Whitfield, um, but it also had a massive impact on 
you know, in our context, the Baptist churches in, in um, the colonies, because what you had, what you had happening is it actually drove people to Baptist churches because they were kind of already there or, or they were closer to where, what these guys were, these revivalists were advocating for because mm-hmm. of, be, just be, I think in part because of the differences in um, certain doctrines that, that that Baptists have. And so you had this explosion of Baptist churches that happened um, in, the, in the American colonies. And again, went from being this kind of fringe movement that nobody really cared about, or if they did care about them, they just hated them, to arguably being the most powerful, I guess for lack of a better word, brand of evangelical Christianity in North America, probably the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in part was happened because of the Great Awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Before we before we close this episode out, I I, I just want to make sure we don't do this. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we've painted Whitfield and Wesley as if they they just skipped hand in hand through oh, the countryside. Not always, no. Uh, sharing sharing the, the pulpit. No, you go first. No, by all means, you go first. Uh, they they have they have their fair share of conflict. Yeah. Not not in sort of a parting of ways I'll never talk to you again kind of a thing. The difference between Arminianism and Calvinism and their preaching and their personal theologies does cause tension between them. Oh yeah. Right? And and it does it does hinder their cooperation. At at Whitfield's gonna say at times he felt like they were preaching two different gospels. Mm. Um Whitfield is eventually going to write uh, a published piece called A Letter to the Reverend Mr. John Wesley, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating because these guys worked so closely together, mm-hmm. right? Could you imagine just coming into work one day and realizing that I published... An open letter? An open letter <laughs> to you. <laughs> On like TGC or something? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, oh, and so there, there is this bit of a, a riff between them that, mm. that comes up because of this different doctrine they spend a lot of time working it out. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. Yeah. The difference is they don't do the sort of Martin Luther's Zwingli thing, yeah. right? Where Luther is like, I don't agree with Zwingli. He's probably not going to be in heaven. We're mm-hmm. not going to see him. You just got to go your separate way. Right. Right. They're like, no, we believe in each other and we're going to work this out. Yeah. And they never resolve it. Mm-hmm. They never come to and agree to disagree. They never come to a, oh, no, you're like, one of them doesn't do the whole, like, oh, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, they, re- they, it seems like the conversation, at least the very little that I uh, have been able to study on it, it seems like the, the point they come to is to say, we're saying different things, but maybe not as different as they might be made out to be. Mm-hmm. Right? In, in the same way that Wesley's version of provenial grace, that grace that goes before the gospel and causes the unbeliever to believe mm-hmm. or gives them the opportunity to believe, mm-hmm. uh, being the same thing as the Holy Spirit going before the gospel presentation to quicken the heart of the elect. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe these things aren't as different, right. but they kind of feel different. That's That was... Mm. A big portion of their conversation. Yeah. Right. And mm. Wesley, more than Whitfield, mm-hmm. is figuring out his theology as he goes. Yeah. 
He gets into some things that he later goes, eh, I'm going to back out of that. Yeah. Uh, for a while, he's into uh, Christian perfectionism. Yeah. Right? The idea that when we are redeemed, we are or at least have the capacity to be sinless. Yeah. Um, it doesn't last long, and he's retracting some of that, but still carries on very much as a tradition uh, mm -hmm. of Wesley. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of great going on. Mm -hmm. Not perfect. Yeah. It's, it's worth saying that. In spite of, but, in spite of their, their fights, because like, at one point, I think Wesley calls Calvinism heresy. <laughs> and then Whitfield's like, stop saying that, or I won't, <laughs> won't be your friend anymore. Kind of like, like, <laughs> like, we have dinner tonight. What, yeah, are, you like, doing? what are you doing? Right? Um, but eventually, at, at one point, you know, someone, someone asked Whitfield of Wesley, do you think he's going to be in heaven, right? Because he's an Arminian. Mm -hmm. do, do you think? Do you think Wesley will will make it? And and Whitfield essentially. I wish I had the exact quote. I don't have it in front of me, but it's something along the. I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, I have no doubt that w that John Wesley will be in heaven, but he will be so much closer to that heavenly throne that you know I might not even be able to see him or something, something along those lines. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea of like, in spite of our theological differences, which are not nothing, which are significant to some degree. Right. I, I don't question for a moment that, you know, he will be there in heaven with me. So, um, I just find that to be a beautiful thing mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do. Right. And to be able to say, we don't have to pretend like our differences are, are inconsequential, but we also don't have to, um, ignore, how the Lord is, has worked in and through um, people who don't see eye to eye with us on every particular theological issue. Keeping secondary issues secondary. Mm -hmm. It is an art. It is. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by The Alex. Talk to you next time. See ya.